0: So there are different ways you can learn. You can learn by positive examples, but just as important is you can learn really good lessons by negative examples. So many years ago, 15 probably years ago, my wife and I would make these trips down to Monterey because her grandparents lived down there. And Monterey is a fantastic place to go visit. And every time we would go there, we would take our kids to this park called Dennis the Menace Park. Yes. One of the coolest parks in the world. The reason why we have a fire truck out here is because of Dennis the Menace Park. They have this really old locomotive. I want an old locomotive, but it's hard to get a locomotive somewhere. It's easier to drive a fire truck that's old and cool, so we went with a fire truck, All right, That's the, the, the idea came from it. So Dennis the Menace Park, Super cool. Dennis the Menace would enjoy himself there. It's that kind of park. So we go there and we're there and it's one of these beautiful days in Monterey where the sun is out and it's like 75 degrees. Epic weather. A lot of people at the park. We see this lady, she kind of pulls up, she kind of pulls in, she's pulling a little bit quick and um, out of the car piles these like, they're all under 10 probably, These five kids just get out of this car, just like, it it barfs them out. They're just like, come out. And we learned later that she had driven an hour from Santa Cruz to get there. So that kind of made sense of the story because have you ever been in the car for an hour with five kids under 10? Okay, it is God's grace that you don't eat them or beat them, like that's just, it's that simple. So I get her head like where she's at. So she gets out, kids get out, they go crazy. They're acting like they're at the park or something, right? They're just going crazy doing their thing. Well, one of the kids, she looked like she's about nine. She ran over to these slides. They have the best slides there, like two of them in a row. They're really cool slides. And there's a line of little kids trying to go down this slide. She decides she's not gonna go down the slide. She's going to climb up the slide, right? So this kid, like, he has to stop himself halfway down the slide. And She's trying to go up the slide, and it's a problem. It has to be dealt with. Every parent knows that. You have to deal with this... Kid, right? We know that's gonna happen. So I see this lady and she has a walk. You know the walk? Like this is business time. I'm getting some. So I see this and I'm like, woo, I know this has to happen, but I don't want to be a witness to it. This is California. I might be called into like by a judge or something, and I don't want to be a witness. I'm like, I didn't see anything, I heard a whack thud, that was it. So I just turned away, but she did not do that. She made it about halfway across the park, and then she starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Like, what is wrong with you? How do you think you are? I'm gonna put you back in the car. We will drive an hour home if you don't get off that slide right now. Just, you're like, oh, the entire park, like you put a pause button. <laughs> like this kid with a binky was right next to me. He's like... The swings, like they froze halfway up. Like, it was that, like, oh. I remember as a young parent, in that moment, I said, note to self, do not yell at your children in the park. There's plenty of time for that in the car. You can wait, right? That went deep in me, a negative example. We're in this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. And we're in this section where it's three negative examples in a row. Don't, don't, don't. And these negative examples are just as important for us as the many positive examples that we've seen in Mark. So it's three don'ts in Mark 8. Turn there if you have your Bible. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha, Don't, number one. Don't forget. When I read that story, did your radar go off because you've heard a very similar story? It should, because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a similar miracle, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000. So, do you remember that? So there's a group of people, they're called critical scholars. And a critical scholar is someone that says, the Bible isn't from God, it doesn't mean anything. It's just man's word. So critical scholars will look at this little section and they'll say, Mark made a mistake. He repeated himself. They got kind of mixed up. I think, really? What's the first lesson you learn in sixth grade English when you write your paper? You proofread. Like he would be writing on a scroll. Literally, he could look back a, little, a couple of inches on the scroll and see the story he had just written. I mean, really? Is he that bad? Listen, this is not an accident. This is not an error. This is not a repetition of the same story with some events changed. This is how things really happened. And here's why. We are exactly like these disciples. If you skip down to verse 18, I have it on the screen. It says this, Jesus talking about it. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? So Jesus is like, hey, he talks about the other story as well. So what's the purpose of two very similar stories super close together in the gospel of Mark? Why do we have this? Why? Because we forget we're just like these disciples. Let me give you a test. Go back in your head. 10 years, 20 years, 2008. Have you ever had financial difficulty in your life? Raise your hand. Okay. Most of us in that time, were you full of stress and anxiety because of financial difficulty in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, did you pray? I hope you did. And if you prayed, did God get you through that financial difficulty? And you're like, oh, probably that's why you're still here, right? Okay, since that time, since God saw you in 2008 or whatever it was, got you through that financial problem, since that time, have you had subsequent financial difficulty? Did those new financial difficulties cause you new anxiety and stress? probably. It's like we forgot that God met us in the previous one, multiplied bread and paid our bills. We forget. We're just like these disciples, like God didn't help us. We're exactly like them, right? But there's a second reason that's really interesting about this story. The first story, the 5,000, happened in the promised land, happened in to God's people in Israel happened in a very unique spot, right? Where they had a history of God doing this for them feeding the multitude in the wilderness for 40 years with manna, feeding Elijah with birds when there was a famine, feeding a widow with oil and flour that did not run out. So they had the history of God. They had God's land, right? Okay, I can see why God would do it here. The disciples would think in their head. Why he would feed, it's it's been his history. Okay, we get it, good. But this is a different location. If you back up to chapter seven, in verse 31, it tells us that they were in the region of the Decapolis. It literally means 10 cities. It's a Greek region, a Gentile region. No longer the promised land, no longer God's people, no longer this history with God. It was the wrong people. So I think the disciples were like, yeah, I can see why God would do it over here, why Jesus would feed us here, but these are the wrong people. This is the wrong land. God couldn't possibly work here like he did before. You ever thought that? Those were different circumstances. That was a different scenario. This is a a new thing. God can't work in this way like He did before. Or, God, you wouldn't bless those people. They're the wrong kind of people. Ever thought that way? Probably. I think most of us need both of these stories because we do the same things these disciples do. We forget, we think these circumstances are different. I'll give you a goofy example. My wife does not like to be cold. If you come to my house, it'll be 104 degrees most days. It's like shoveling coal into a locomotive at my house. I just put the wood in and just wear a shirt and shorts and that's it because it is frying hot. Like she does not like to be cold, right? So that sets up this story. Many years ago, we were going to Mount Shasta Sunday and then we'd stay the night in our RVs up at Mount Shasta and then we'd go skiing or snowboarding the next day. So we'd gone up there um, a, a couple weeks before this, and the heater in our RV had broken the, the following day. So it got us through the night, but it had broken. So I pulled out the boards. I took them to the RV place. They fixed it. It was the voltage to the, the thing that ignites the actual flame. That was not good. So they had measured it. They showed me, okay, okay, great. They fixed it. Well, put it back in, head up there, get up there, go to turn on the heater. It's like 15 degrees out. And guess what? Heater doesn't work. So there was another friend, they they were part of Edgeware at the time, they were next to us, so my whole family leaves me, and they go into the nice, warm RV. So I'm there, like, freezing, like, ah, ah, trying to check the voltage on this thing, it's it's not good. So I head over to the other RV, I get in there, I'm like, yeah, heater's broken, it's not going to work. Well, my wife says we should pray. Now, the engineer in me is like, God doesn't solder, sweetie. It just isn't gonna happen. But I can't say that because this other family goes to Edgewater, right? She has to be like, that is a great idea, sweetie. Yes, we should pray, right? But I knew if I prayed, it would not be a prayer of faith. They'd be like, this isn't gonna happen. So I said, sweetie, you better pray. So she does, she prays. We go back over to our our motor home. My wife goes, turns the little dial up, click. heater works, I'm like, really, God? I mean, come on. Right? So I got that story, right? I was like, I don't know how that happened. Cause I just measured, like literally I measured the voltage. It was not there. So I don't know. All right. Okay. So I got that story. Okay, Lord, that's great. But then new scenario. A couple years ago, it's my daughter Gabrielle's birthday. And we're asking her, what do you want? It's on a Sunday. She said, I want these things. I want the hot tub to work. And the hot tub had not been working. So I spent Saturday out there working on this hot tub, trying to get the heater to work. It does not work. So I come in, dinner time. I break the bad news to my wife. I'm like, the hot tub's not working and it's not gonna work. So sorry. Guess what my wife says? We should pray. pray. I say, you're gonna have to pray because there's no faith here. It's not working. God still doesn't solder, right? I can see why God would meet us on Mount Shasta because it's cold and we could have frozen to death and been dead. This is a luxury item. God is not gonna do it for a luxury item. It's not gonna happen, sweetie. So she prays. I go to church, do the three services. Me lack of faith, come home, fill the hot tub. It's warm. Like, really? Okay. Don't we all do this? That's why there's two stories. Because we are the disciples we forget. So what do we do to remedy remedy that? There's a a Psalm, it's Psalm 78. It's one of my favorites. And in Psalm 78, it says this, it's really talking to dads and saying, dads, make sure and tell your kids from one generation to the next generation, make sure you're telling your kids the testimony of Jacob, what God has done, how God has met you the things that God has seen you through. Make sure you're passing that on. Why? So that your kids will put their hope in God. We begin our service with prayer because we think prayer really matters and also praise reports because that's just as important. Hey, remember when we prayed about this a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Here's what happened. Here's how God moved. Why? Because we want you to put your hope in God. It's Acts 14, 28. Paul and Barnabas see God work in these amazing ways. They come back to their home church in Jerusalem and it says they shared testimony of everything that God had done. Why? So that people will put their hope in God. Like one of the reasons why churches stress journals is because of this right here, because we forget so quickly. Like we need to be writing things down. I just wrote down something recently. Like it's a miracle for us. My daughter in school and just, it was impossible. Like, and we had completely given up, like, ah, uh, prayed a ton about it, prayed more about that situation than anything recent for us as a family. And it's just total failure. Then, out of the blue, God did some amazing things and just, He worked. Like, oh my goodness, He answered our prayers. I had to write that out for myself so I wouldn't forget. We're supposed to be doing that. The lesson here is don't forget. Jesus says, Don't you remember? Don't you remember how I worked? Remember those. Put your hope in God, because when you have your hope in God, Hebrews 6:19 says, "It's the anchor for your soul. When does a boat need an anchor? Man, when there's storms, when there's waves, when things are tough, when there's tribulation, when there's difficulty, put your hope in God. Don't forget. Remember how God has met you. Write those out. Keep those as a treasure, as an anchor of your soul. Lesson number one, don't forget. Lesson number two, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation seek a sign truly I say to you no sign will be given to this generation and he left them got into a boat again and went to the other side wow lesson number two don't seek signs the Pharisees you should know this by now, are a group of people that don't like Jesus. They come to him and it says they wanted to argue with him. Not learn from him, not even ask him questions. They came because they wanted to argue with him and they say, show us a sign. What had Jesus just done? Fed 4,000 people with a Lunchable. Like, what? Right? Right? are you kidding? And the week before that, I fed 5,000. And the week before that, I healed a deaf man. And the week before that, I cast a demon out. And the week before that, I resurrected a daughter. Are you kidding me? Right? So what does Jesus do? It says he groans deeply. Just like, oh, and his answer, no, no. Even more than that, He gets into a boat and leaves. He's like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. I can't even take this anymore. I'm leaving. You will not manipulate me is what Jesus is saying. It's immature. It's like a kid saying, I double dare you. I double dare you. And Jesus just said, nope, I'm not playing that game. You're seeking a sign. I will not give it to you. I, I read atheist books and try, try to keep my you know, head wrapped around whatever old idea they're just reformulating. That's all they do. And uh, one I read a while back was this. They said, if God was real, why doesn't he just write the 10 commandments on the moon? Like, what? And Jesus, guy just like, what? No, no, I'm getting in a boat on leaving, right? I mean, who would that actually help? Wouldn't help the last 6,000 years of Humanity, right? It's gonna help one dude with a telescope. It's ridiculous. Right? It's like that. Like, what? Are you kidding? We don't demand things of God. Like, He's this wind up toy that we can manipulate so He'll dance for us and do what we want. Uh uh-uh. uh. I think when we do that, when we seek signs like this, God says no, gets in a boat, and goes you may say, "Why well, don't we really do that. Well, here's a subtle tendency that I think can happen in believers that we gotta be aware of. We know the value of testimonies, right? I just said that, Psalm 78, Acts 14. So we know the value of like God working. So then we begin to almost look at life and try to make everything a sign, right? You know people that do that? I can do that. I gotta be careful of that tendency. And this is what we say. We put it like this. Well, all things happen for a, now is that true? Is that biblical? That all things happen for a reason. Because if we say that, man, we get weird. Some dude starts doing drugs and gets just totally mentally deficient because of drug abuse goes crazy, loses all his money, gets into a car, has an accident, hurts somebody or kills somebody, do we say, well, well, all things happen for a reason? I believe there is senseless evil and we don't have to try to make sense of it. That there are things that are just senseless and that is evil and I don't have to try to figure out why it happened and I don't have to say it happened for a reason, I just say that is senseless evil. I'll give you an example. The fact that our country has slaughtered 60 million babies is senseless evil. It did not happen for a reason. It is senseless and it is evil. And when it happened in Israel, when they were doing the same thing, listen to what God says. It's Jeremiah 32, 35. They built the high places of Baal and the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination, senseless, depraved evil to cause Judah to sin. Now, that didn't happen for a reason. No. That's senseless evil. That there are things that happen in this world that are senseless, and evil. If you want God's perfect will, there's only four chapters in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. The middle section, the majority of your Bible, you know what it is? Humans trashing God's good creation. That's the majority of scripture. Oh, Matt, that sure is depressing. it is. Read the news. It's depressing. What's the good news? The good news is given to us at the end of the very first book in the bible it's genesis 50:20 where joseph had senseless evil done to him betrayed sold into slavery senseless evil but he says this he says what you meant for evil what you meant for evil senseless depraved evil what you meant for evil god has turned to good to the saving of many lives See, the good news is this. We serve a God that is able to take evil and turn it for good. I call it judo theology. If you've been at Edgewater for any time, you know this. That he can take the momentum of evil and actually turn it in such a way that he uses it for his good. Though he didn't cause it, didn't want it, it's abomination, didn't even come into his mind that it would happen. He is great enough to turn even evil for his purpose. That's the good news. And the best news is this. It's the end of the story. It's Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. He says, there's coming the Palengenesia the brand new Genesis, the new Eden, the new creation, when you and I are in a place where all that's senseless and all that is evil, and all that is corrupt is thrown away in this place called the lake of fire. And we live the way that we are designed to live for eternity. That's, that's our hope. Not that all things happen for a reason. They don't. They're senseless, stupid things. We don't have to seek those things. It's senseless. It's stupid. That's evil, period. But we serve a God who can actually take that and turn it for good. That's our hope. So we gotta be careful. Don't seek signs. And signs don't make mature people. Do you know that? These Pharisees had seen a whole bunch of signs and they kept wanting more and more and more and more. And more. More signs, more signs, more signs. Do you know what I think is a mature believer? A believer that can lose everything. And Jesus is still enough, which happens to the apostle Paul. Read 2 Timothy. Jesus is still enough for them, even though they have nothing. That's what it is. Now, Jesus can do all kinds of things. My wife's prayers are proof of that. He holds the heart of the king in his hand. He can turn it wherever he wants, right? Whatever politician you don't like, Jesus has their heart in his hand. Whatever politician you think is totally corrupt, Jesus holds their heart in his hand and he can transform their heart. He can do all those things, but we don't seek or demand it. We trust him. That's it. And I'll tell you this for me personally. If Jesus never did another thing for me. What he's already done in his life as my example, in his death on the cross to purchase me out of sin and depravity. Like you have no idea what I come from, the Heverleys. My brother dead from alcoholism. My dad dead from alcoholism. My grandpa and my grandma on my dad's side dead from alcoholism. As far back as I can see, for Heavenly Men, it's been bad photocopy, a bad photocopy, a bad photocopy. What's the difference in me? Jesus. If Jesus did nothing more for me from this day forward than what he's already done for me, I am the most blessed man on the planet. Jesus is enough. I don't seek signs. Oh, I pray and I trust. I trust him as my king. I don't demand something. I don't test him. I don't argue with him. He's been so good to me. How would I not want his will to be done? Not my will. I can demand something. You got to be careful. We're not seeking signs. Holy Ghost goosebumps. Angels or whatever people seek. We're not seeking that. We're supposed to seek Jesus. That my goal is Jesus, not a sign. Those are shadows. I want the substance, which is Jesus. So warning number two, don't seek signs. And if you've been in church long enough, you've seen churches and people go sideways when it's all about signs. Because no longer is Jesus what's most important. Signs become most important. Warning number two. Warning number three. Verse 14. Now, They had forgotten to bring bread. This is such a great Mark story. This begins with, hey, we forgot to bring bread. All about bread, all about miracles. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Warning number three don't leaven. I love this story. Jesus, tired of the Pharisees and they're arguing with him and asking for signs, gets in a boat, they're rowing across and the 12 disciples are sitting there and they must be hungry because they're looking at the one loaf, right? And don't think like a big loaf of bread. It's like a dinner roll size. So they're all like hungry, like, oh man, I am starved. Who gets that? like the last piece of pizza, who's going to be the selfish one that grabs that. And then Jesus uses this opportunity to say, Hey, look out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they're me like, Oh dang, we forgot bread. Jesus is ticked. Whose job was it? John, why didn't you bring some bread, man? Like completely missing it. I love it. I can see Jesus just like, are you for real? I fed 5,000 people and then I found 4,000 people and you're worried about bread right now? Just palm meat face. Oh, really? Goodness. You're worried about bread when I've showed you what I can do. Are you kidding? It would be like this. It'd be like, if you're with Elon Musk and you're worried about a car. Nah, you don't need to. If you're with Tom Brady and you're worried about a Super Bowl ring, he's got like 27 of them. Like, don't worry about it. It's like like that. Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Here's his point. There's these tiny things that when they come into a loaf, they actually change the chemistry of it and change what it looks like, change what it tastes like, like they change it, tiny things. And the Pharisees, here's their deal. They wanted to look like something, but they didn't care if they were actually it. They wanted to look, not be. So they wanted to look generous. So when they gave money, they would blow a trumpet so everybody would look at them. But were they really generous? Because we saw they invented a law that made it so that they didn't have to help their mom and dad when they were in trouble financially. They wanted to look it, but they weren't actually generous. They want to look holy by long prayers, but they were empty and they were vain. They want to look spiritual, but they weren't. So the Pharisees, they were all about outside looking like something, but they didn't really care to be it. What about Herod? What's his leaven? He's the guy that killed John the Baptist a couple of chapters ago. Well, Herod had this problem. He cared solely about the opinions of other people and he would do whatever they wanted, whether it was his wife or his niece or the crowd of people that was around him. So he didn't do what was right because of peer pressure. So what's leaven? I think if you drill down on what leaven is, it's your motivation. What's your motive? This is what Jesus is saying. This little thing, it seems insignificant, but it actually gets into the chemistry of the soul and it changes you. So a Pharisee, Their motivation was looking good. That was it. They didn't care to be good. They just wanted to look good. They didn't care about broken people like a man with a withered hand who's in a church service. They didn't care about him. Just make sure and follow all of our rules. Look good. And what happens is that little motivation begins to shape you differently. Herod didn't care about like, what was the right thing to do? He took a pole. And whatever the poll said, that's what he did. Even if it was murdering somebody. And Herod, because of that poor motivation, murders John the Baptist. He gets warped. The Pharisees, because of their motivation and Jesus poking them, they're going to kill Jesus. Break one of the Ten Commandments. The thing that's so highly venerated. Because motives really matter, don't they? So you guys know Mother Teresa, a gal that gave her life to help the untouchable of the untouchables, the dirtiest, most broken people on the planet out of the slums of Calcutta. Bad, bad. Tens of thousands of people she's helped. Let's imagine we found a diary of Mother Teresa. Now we have not, I'm making this up, But in that diary, Mother Teresa begins to write, I hate the untouchables, I can't stand them. Oh, it's so gross here, it's disgusting. But I'm doing all this to gain fame and power and money. If we had that, would that change your opinion of Mother Teresa? Well, sure, because the motivation matters. Let me give you a closer to home example. Let's say after church today, on the way home, I go and I buy my wife her favorite chocolate bar, and I buy her some flowers, And I take them home and I give them to my wife. And she's like, wow, what what motivated you to do this? What if I said, well, because I wanna get you off my back so I can watch football. (laughs) So you can feed me some guacamole and chips while I relax here. What would I be eating? (laughs) Flowers and a chocolate bar with the wrapper still on it. That's what I would eat. Right? Because you know motives matter. It's not just the act that matters. We know motives really matter. That's the leaven that shapes you. That's the leaven that either will make you into something beautiful beyond comparison, or it will release a beast in you that can murder. That's what Jesus is saying. Be really, really careful. The Pharisees, all they cared about was looking good. They wanted their checklist. And I think the reason why they wanted their checklist is if they had their checklist, they don't need Jesus. So it actually reminds me of this book I read a while back. It's called Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. And her main character has this quote. I wrote it down when I read it because it was so good. Listen to this quote. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. That's a Pharisee. If I just check off all my boxes, I don't need a savior. I don't need Jesus. I don't need to be changed on the inside. I don't need my motives looked at. I don't need any of that. I got it. But motives matter. They're shaping me, they're shaping you. And I'll tell you, there's nothing harder to break than motives. It's the diamond in the human heart. So, what can change the motives of a human heart? Not lists. I think there's only one thing that changes motives it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel Jesus came to save us from our sins? Yes or no? You guys know better than that nowadays. You're like, do not answer any of Matt's questions i say yes, but also no. Here's why. There was already a system in place to save us from our sins. Do you know that? It's called the Old Testament. Sacrifices, 613 do's and don'ts. Psalm 19 just says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There's a system in place. It was the problem. You and I couldn't do it. So what did Jesus come to save us from? Ourselves. He came to save me from me. My inability to keep my lists, my inability to have good motivations, my inabilities, because those things in the end will twist me and warp me. My desire to look like something, but actually be something, that's what he came. You read the Sermon on the Mount, the very first recorded message of Jesus, so important. How much of that sermon has motives? So much of it doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, giving, fasting, praying. Jesus says this, hey, you haven't murdered somebody, fantastic. But if you've got anger, deep motive, you've already done it because that's what's gonna grow and twist you. Hey, you haven't committed adultery, hey, great. But if you've got lust, deep motive, you've already done it because that's what's gonna grow and twist you. And then he just ends that whole section by saying, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Anyone struggle with that one? Yeah, you gotta save me from that. I can't do that, right? Jesus has no interest in making moralists, no interest in making checklist people. He wants to make a new humanity that's actually transformed from the inside out where the diamond of your motive is shaped according to his grace. According to his mercy. That's why we need the gospel over and over and over and over again. You never leave the gospel. Because it's shaping us. My favorite verse is verse 21. After all this, Jesus says, Do you not yet understand? I think 12 guys were like, no, we don't. Uh, yeah, we don't understand. And what does Jesus do? Gives us eight more chapters. He knows they're dense. He knows they're hard of hearing. He knows they don't understand. He knows I'm dense. He knows I'm hard of hearing. He knows my eyes are blind. He knows I don't understand. And what does Jesus do? He gives me more chapters because he's the faithful one. If I'm not coming to argue and I'm not coming against, if I'm really saying, God, I don't understand this. My heart is, I don't even understand my motives. God, help me. Guess what Jesus does? I will help you. I'll walk with you. I will shape you. That's what he does. Gives us more and more of what we need. Like, what we need is not lists. We need to know how good Jesus is. We need to know the beauty of the Lord, that the beauty of the Lord be upon us. That's what we actually know because that transforms hearts. Core motives are changed, we're shaped in a new way. So, it's not us gritted teeth doing something, it's us transformed into new kinds of people that actually want to do those things. That's the power of the gospel. It's why every Sunday we take communion because it's the gospel. Look how good he is. You don't deserve to be at this table. You didn't make your way here. You didn't checklist down. You were invited by the king to be his special guest and to eat and dine with him because of his grace. That's what this table is. It's why we always go there because I want to be shaped more and more. I want my motives purified i want that diamond of my heart broke up and it only happens by the gospel so if you have your elements grab them we'll take them together father today We are grateful for your unspeakable gift that your son Jesus who thought it not robbery to be one with you equal with you made himself of no reputation took upon himself the form of a servant being made in the likeness of man and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. I pray that the gospel, the good news would break up the uncut rough diamond of my heart where I care more to look than to actually be where I allow the opinions of people or our culture to shape what I do rather than what's right and true. Change my motives. Purify them, I pray this day. I pray that for every person in here that has those same problems, that as we eat of you, you would strengthen us, purify our motives. Let's eat together. And the cup cup of forgiveness. No doubt. The cup of cleansing. We're so glad. The cup of celebration because you declared that one day you'll drink this anew in the coming kingdom. And we look forward to that coming kingdom one day when all the senseless evil that we see around us is wrapped up and destroyed in the lake of fire. And we rule and reign with you for eternity. Oh, so forgive and cleanse and give us the hope of the coming kingdom we ask. Let's drink together. Amen. So you know what we do? We'll sing one final song. After that song, you can go if you want. There's a Mops, Mothers of Preschool, bake sale. You can buy something for Thanksgiving. But we also offer prayer up here. Nothing too big, nothing too small. We think prayer is really important to God. But Jesus says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. So prayer begins our service and prayer ends our service. And there'll be people up here that love to pray for you. If Become burdened, come get prayer. We do baptisms. That baptismal does not save you. Who saves you? Jesus saves you. This is obeying the command of your king who says, be baptized. If today is your day to be baptized, we'd love to join with you. Explain more of what that means. If, if this is your day, awesome. Right over here will be someone that'd love to meet with you and talk with you and pray with you and then baptize you. If you're doing good, man, have a great Thanksgiving. Would you stand for this final song?